Good morning. As you uh, get back to your seat and enjoy your second or third or fourth cup of coffee where you're at, I'll pray and we'll uh, transition to looking at the word this morning. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we could gather and um, I trust we can hear from you this morning. I trust you have you have good for us. Um, as we start a new series here, I trust that your word will go forth, Lord. And I even especially want to lift up uh, our other location in Franktown this morning that's meeting. I pray that you would be working in that fellowship as well and that uh, disciples would be um, being made in that location. I pray you would bless Rich as he teaches on, on the church in Ephesus this morning. And Lord, help us here as we... Uh, just want to hear what you have for us from uh, the book of Revelation and what you have for our lives. Uh, thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for each person who's here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome to the Firehouse Church. I'm Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new with us, we are really glad you're here. Um, I had a chance to meet some of you. Others, be glad to meet you afterwards. Um, it, it does. It takes courage to come into a new setting like this, but... Uh, we are a family, and we'd love to just welcome you into our family, and um, I really hope that you do feel welcome here this morning. Um, as I mentioned there as we were praying, we do have two locations of the Firehouse Church. We have uh, about 50 people who are meeting currently in Franktown, right at the same time as us. Uh, kind of, this, this is sort of city church, and that's kind of country church. Um, and... Uh, Part of that is we launch into this new series here uh, because we meet simultaneously. We've got a camera set up in the back and they're filming. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we don't do that. Rich is teaching at the same time. And so next week you will not see me. You will see Rich up here instead. So those of you who uh, are tired of me after several weeks are going to get a shot to hear somebody different next week. And for them, I guess, vice versa. Maybe they're tired of Rich down there. I don't know. Um, I did want to say quick before I get started, just a, a thank you to all of you who've helped out here in the past few weeks as we've done a, a number of projects around the building. And um, even as we, we think about uh, just serving, you know, as we talked about in our last series, discipleship uh, has a number of facets to it. And one of those is serving. And a number of you have really stepped up to serve in a number of areas. And I just want to say thank you. I think of we got new faces on stage with the band, new faces behind the um, behind the coffee bar back there, uh, new faces helping in Sunday school with setup and with cleanup, uh, with greeting. So I just want to say to all of you, thank you so much for stepping up and just having a heart to serve. Um, it's been a blessing to me. I know a blessing to everybody else here. Um, now, as Brad alluded to, we are starting a series here at the Firehouse on the book of Revelation. Um, now, if you're like me, that statement brings to mind some kind of horrible chart like this one. I love that this says chart number four, right? Oh, there's more charts than just this one, right? I, this just brings back memories to me. Um, but don't worry if this kind of gives you the GBs like it does me. This is not how we're approaching the book of Revelation in this series. Um, so let me start with some opening thoughts here on the book of Revelation um, for this week. Uh, first question we ask is why? Why do we read? Why do we read the book of Revelation? What is the point? What is its purpose? Is it just apocalypses and white horses, a lake of fire, a new Jerusalem, goofy charts, 
Fortunately, that's not it. And we don't have to go very far to find out what the point of revelation is. And um, I will be the first to admit, to confess to you all, that I'm usually, anytime I read revelation, totally confused by what I read. Right? For those of you who are like me and you go through the one-year Bible uh, as a reading plan for staying consistent and reading the scripture and that habit of discipleship, December is a really challenging time. Because I want to read about the birth of Jesus, and instead, through that series, we end up reading the book of Revelation. And I'm usually really confused, but I think that's okay. I think sometimes we have to really start at verse 1 to find out what the purpose of Revelation is. And there's what it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So why do we read it? Well, it's right there. We read it because Jesus gave it to us. I don't know about you, but that's a good enough reason for me to take note of what's going on there and set aside my confusion. I think anything that Jesus says, we really should pay attention to it. So we look at this, things that must soon take place. What does soon mean? Does that mean tomorrow? Does that mean next week? In an hour, well, we have to remember here that God is not constrained by time the way that we are constrained by time. So when he says soon, that really could be any time. Soon, in this sense, it could be in a prophetic sense of things that will eventually happen. Or it could even be in a general sense of things that are happening all around us today. So... We also see from this that revelation is a guide. It's to show us. It's a guide. And it's a guide for who? It's a guide for people who are Jesus' servants. Now, when you think about guides, um, who here has ever been to Bulgaria? Good. Nobody's been to Bulgaria. I've never been to Bulgaria. Right? So let's say we decided we were going to take a trip to Bulgaria. And none of us probably really knows anything about Bulgaria. But we're given a book. And this book tells us all things about Bulgaria, but it would probably be fairly confusing, right? Because they have customs and cultures and ways of life that are different from ours here in America. And I think in some ways, if you serve Jesus, this book of Revelation is like the guidebook for going to visit Bulgaria, right? There's maybe some things we can catch some reference points on, but you're really not going to understand what it says until you get there, right? And I think Revelation is the same way as we think about going into the future. Um, It's a guidebook that's going to reveal information to us as we need it. It describes a place, the future, that is unfamiliar to us. And so, if you serve Jesus, and if you look at your own life, and we talked about this a little last week, if you serve Jesus, if you have received him as your Lord and Savior, and you are uh, have called him your Lord then this book is for you, even if you're like me and you're totally confused by a lot of what it says. So, we move on here to to verse 3 of chapter 1. It says this, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. I think that's awesome. We get three verses into this book, and we not only do we know why 
we're reading this, but we know that there's a benefit to reading this. There's a blessing. And so how are we blessed? We're blessed when first we read it aloud. We're blessed second when we listen to it. When we're blessed third, when we take heed. When we keep the words that are said in it. Now, at the Firehouse Church in this series, we are not going to deal with the prophetic portion of this book. Chapters 4 through the end, chapter 21. So, you can wipe your brow and you weren't having to count the weeks and look at your calendar and say, Okay, when do I need to come back? So when we're going to be done with this? If we're not doing that, right? So, we're only going to focus on the encouragements and warnings that are given to the churches found in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this is going to be our goal. We're going to read it. We're going to listen to it. And we're going to try to take heed of what it says. So, without any further delay, we're going to just read chapter 1 together. And then we'll move on. So, here's chapter 1 on the screen for you. Starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and king and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest the hair on his head was white like wool and white as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first And the last, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands. Are the seven churches. So that's chapter one. Now, a little background there, you might have picked up on this. John, who was a disciple of Jesus, is writing this, and he's in exile on an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. Now, why is he there? Well, he was not popular with the authorities because of his faith and his outspokenness for Jesus, and he had actually been, there had been attempts to execute him. A number of times. And he had survived those. Finally they said forget it. We're sending you to this island. And they exiled him there. And so that's where he is. And as he's there as it says. God spoke to him and showed him visions. And these visions begin with messages. To the seven churches. As it says right there at the end of the passage. 
So, what are the seven churches, and why are they significant? Well, I got a little map for you here. If you ever wondered where the seven churches of Revelation are, here they are, the red dots. You can see they're all in a, in a very small area around uh, the western coast of Turkey. Now, if you look up at the north, there's Bulgaria. So if you wondered where Bulgaria was, it's sort of where the P and the E of Europe is, right? And then you can see off on the, uh, the far right side of the screen, you can see where Israel was. Now, Patmos was very close to Ephesus there. It was out in the Aegean Sea, just off to the west of that. Now, these seven churches were not major churches in this era. These were not the seven biggest churches or the most prominent churches. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about why he picked those. But um, one view of these seven messages, right? So we get seven messages, and that's what starts in chapter 2. You get Ephesus and Smyrna and so forth. One view on those is called a historicism view. And I have a picture of what some people think that, oh, this means that each of these churches represents a period of time in history. And it represents things that are the church of Jesus is struggling with during those eras. And then when we get to the end, we're going to get to the rapture and the tribulation. And um, so this is one view on it. Um, that these churches represent what they call dispensations of church history. Now, I think there's some problems with this. The first one is, how do we really know when any of these begin and end? I don't think we can really know. I think that there's a challenge there to say, oh, it was that date, and then it goes on to the next one, right? I think another problem is this sort of defies the concept when Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour when I return. Well, if you were living and you were in sort of one of these earlier phases, like it shows in this diagram, you'd be like, well, Jesus isn't coming for a long time because we're only in the second phase of this. I don't think that's really what Jesus intended when he said that. Another problem with this view is that the issues that occur, the warnings that are sort of given to each of these seven churches have occurred for churches all throughout history. And so it becomes very difficult to say, well, the church in the second century dealt with issues that we don't deal with today and we deal with ones that they don't. There's a universality to this message that goes all the way through. And so my opinion is that there's maybe too much speculation to really stick with this as a model. So we're not really going to look at it this way. Hey, I suppose it could be true. We could probably have debates and there's a lot of number of different smart people who've really thought about this, but that's not what we're going to do. Instead, our series, we're going to focus on what I call the obvious view, which is, let's take a clear reading of the scripture, and that is that the seven churches represent seven types of churches, or seven conditions that churches will face during the church age. And of course, the church age is the time that lasts from Jesus' resurrection until his second coming, right? Now, in each of these sections, on each of these churches, uh, there are warnings. It's, uh, what does God say we should watch out for in church? What should we watch out for in society? There's also encouragements. What does God highlight things that we should be striving to obey? Uh, what promises does he make to us? Right? And I think when you put those things together, you have little math equations. You have warnings and encouragements. And it gets you to what God's heart for us is. And that, as Brad mentioned, our series is titled First Love. And that's really talking about God's first love is for us. And we need to return to our first love for him. And part of that is understanding what God's heart for us is. So today, 
we're going to tackle the church in Smyrna. Now, our series is not going to be in order. Smyrna is really the second church. Rich sort of claimed Ephesus, and he's teaching on that in Franktown. So next week, you will get church number one, and they'll get church number two. So just roll with us as we experiment at this two locations at the same time. So um, so we'll skip ahead here to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And this is the message to the church of Smyrna. <clears throat> says this, and this is Jesus speaking to John. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we're going to talk about some themes that come out in this, things that we can apply to our lives, to our church, to our faith today. Now, at first glance, when I look at this, I go, wow, there really is a theme of death in this, isn't there? Not necessarily the most encouraging theme to pull out of there, but I see it, right? You look at the beginning, Jesus talking about himself, he emphasizes his own death. He says, who died and came to life, right? Well, that's one instance of death in the passage. The second one he talks about later on, be faithful unto death. Well, there's another mention of death right there. That's two. The third one. The last two words of this, the second death, will not be hurt by the second death. So here we have, in just a mere five verses, death, death, and death. And yet there is a fourth, a fourth mention of death right here, and that's in the name of the church Smyrna. Smyrna, when translated, means of myrrh. Myrrh was a spice that was traditionally used not just as a gift to Jesus when he was a baby, right? It was, a, it was used traditionally in this time for burial. It's considered a death spice. So here he says, to the church of myrrh. And so death is a theme in this passage, in this message to Smyrna. But I think the theme is not just death, right? I think that would be pretty morbid. I think that the theme is really no fear of death. As Jesus talks about this, he keeps saying, don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of death. So my takeaway is that we should not be worried even about talking about death. But I think we can confront the idea as believers. Now, you've heard it said there's two certainties in life, right? What are they? Death and taxes, right? Hopefully everybody's done their taxes. Tax day is this week. See somebody scrambling out the back there to go do their taxes. No. Death and taxes, there's two certainties. But for believers, there's a third certainty. And remember, we talked about that last week. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have a confidence, a certainty that you will spend eternity with him. So we have three certainties there. So we should not be afraid of the topic of death. And our third certainty of eternity gives us confidence in the face of death. Now, let's look at the first statement to the church here. We'll go back to the first verse here. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
I see three things here. Three challenges. This is the second theme. Three challenges. The first one, obviously, is tribulation. And tribulation is just a fancy word for intense trials. Clearly, this church in Smyrna was facing intense persecution, intense trials. And history shows us that, yes, that was indeed true. Uh, The Roman Empire was very suspicious of Christians during this era. Um, And because of that suspicion, there was a lot of poor treatment. Um, They even killed a number of Christians. You may have heard of the famous early church father named Polycarp. I always thought that was a funny name, but that was his name. He was from Smyrna. And he ultimately was martyred by being burnt at the stake during the early 2nd century. Now, are we modern Christians facing intense persecution? I think that's a question to ask. Are we in facing intense tribulation? <clears throat> well, I think if you follow the news and you look elsewhere in the world, you will see that yes, Christians are facing intense persecution even today. We'll hear of Christians being beheaded in places like Libya and Syria and Iraq. Christians being driven from places like Nineveh from their homes where their people have been for a thousand years. We hear about the church in China, which has to be underground because of the persecution and the difficulties they face at the hands of the government there. And some of you may have even heard of what happened in Kenya within the last week. At this university, um, a group of terrorists came in and they separated the Muslim students from the Christian students. And they killed 148 Christians because of their faith, because they were studying at this school. Now, in America, we're not really experiencing that, that type of persecution, are we? And I think that's good, and I thank God that we're not experiencing that, at least not today, not historically. But I think our takeaway from this is we have an opportunity to pray for those people who share our faith, who are in other parts of the world. Now, the second challenge that's mentioned here is poverty, which really is just a lack of means. And historically, in, in the uh, first century, those early Christians did not have means. They were poor. And because of that suspicion from the Roman Empire, um, having means was a very difficult thing for them to do. Um, and of course, today in the world, uh, there are examples of this. If Christians struggling in extreme poverty um, in India, they have a caste system. And most people don't realize this, but over half of India's population is so low on the caste system as to be considered outside of that system. And in India, <clears throat> we see many, many, many people who are outside of that system coming to know Christ. But that doesn't change their poverty. They continue to struggle with the poverty from being outside of that. And even in America, we do have poverty. And that poverty cuts across all types of faiths and all all types of things. And there are many Christians even here who face financial challenges and poverty. So, yes, we can say poverty, a lack of means, is a challenge that we have as Christians in the world today. The third challenge mentioned here is slander. And slander is really a spoken untruth saying something about you that is not true this was happening there in the first century um, as there was this suspicion that suspicion led to um, statements that were untrue tacitus a roman historian from that era he called christianity 
a deadly superstition. And that was a sentiment that was shared by many, many people. There was a difference in those days between Christianity and between the prevalent paganism that was all over the Roman Empire. And so they were accused of many things, including cannibalism. Uh, they said, oh, those Christians, they have a, a feast where they come together and they, they take this communion and it's body and blood and they're, they're cannibals, right? So there was slander in those days. So do we see slander of Christians today? Well, let me put it this way. Do you ever see Christians labeled as hateful or bigoted or racist? Do you watch the news? <laughs> Do you ever read those comment sections after articles on the internet? And I see claims in those things and in those places and a, a bent in the news. Claims that are just almost always baseless about what Christians believe. I'll read it and I'll go, wait, I don't believe that. And that's slander. See, as Christians, we strive to love people as Jesus did and we try to go after the truth that's found in the Bible and in my experience of 30-some years of following Jesus, hate and bigotry, racism, when defined appropriately, are just misnomers. They're not true of what we believe. They're not true of who we are. And so that's slander. And where does that slander come from? Well, it comes from a variety of places. I think a predominant one is from leftism. Dennis Prager, who's a uh, an author, radio host, he said it this way. He said, leftism is the most dynamic religion of the past 100 years. Well, what is leftism? I'll just give you sort of a brief overview of it here. Uh, leftism believes uh, in the superiority of group rights and a collective identity, not individual rights and responsibilities. Uh, it really looks to the circumvention of law, not to the rule of law. It looks to make rules based on exceptions, not exceptions for general rules. It looks to the expansion of government, not diminishing government. It looks to a coerced redistribution of wealth, typically through things like higher taxes. It doesn't look to the creation of wealth through free markets. Now, these are some of the core values on the left, and I think it's probably easy to see how these could conflict with values found in the Bible. Value of life, individual responsibility, the rule of a moral law, societal care for each other. And leftism has really gained a tremendous influence over a number of aspects of our world. Universities, news media, entertainment, politics. And I think this has resulted in slander of Christians. Maybe as a way of grasping for cultural power, I don't know. But that's not really my point today. I'm not really here to dissect or... or criticize leftism necessarily i'm just saying the point is that yes we see slander against christians in our culture today and in addition to that we do see uh we do see tribulation for christians around the world we do see poverty for christians around the world we see those as trials for christians today now let's go back to the verse here it says um talking about those who say they are jews and are not but they're a synagogue of Satan. What in the world is a synagogue of Satan, right? A synagogue of Satan, what is that? It seems like it's important, that's a very strong thing. Now, some have suggested that this is talking about Jews who reject Christianity. My opinion would be that that's not what it's talking about. 
There doesn't seem to be an argument here in this passage about how Jewish is somebody, right? I don't, I don't really get that flavor from the New Testament, and I don't think that's the point of this statement. Instead, what I think this is talking about is about Judaized Christians. People who are Christians who decided to become Jews for the sake of avoiding persecution and trials. Now, in that first century, Judaism was actually a fairly safe alternative to Christianity in the Roman Empire. It was not generally persecuted. Some of you who've read the book of, book of Acts remember that Paul goes, as he goes from town to town in Turkey and Greece, he goes where? He goes to synagogues. If a synagogue was allowed to exist, it was not being persecuted. So it was a much safer alternative to Christianity. And so that's what I believe people were People were Christians and they were turning and they were saying, ah, this is, a, this is kind of a rough place to be. I'm going to come over here and, and say that I'm a Jew and get into the synagogue. So what's the parallel in today's culture? What is a safe cultural alternative today to biblical Christianity? Well, I think it's this. I think it's a Christianity that rejects moral teachings in favor of cultural values. Christianity that rejects moral teachings in favor of cultural values. Well, what would be an example of this? I'll give you a couple examples. One, uh, there's a gentleman named Rob Bell. He was a pastor of a church, a megachurch in Michigan, a Christian church. And recently, he went on uh, Oprah Winfrey's show, and he was asked, when will Christians accept same-sex marriage? And this is what he said, quote, I think culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense, end quote. Here's a guy who's supposed to be a Christian pastor and he's saying the Bible is irrelevant. This follows on the heel of a book he wrote in recent years called Love Wins, And in that book, he denies the existence of hell. He denies that there is a penalty for our sin. And we talked about that some last week. And I think Rob Bell is one of those people who's saying, essentially, I'm a Christian on the side of culture, and the rest of you Christians are fools. Another example of this, there's a local school here, right in our town, and their mission statement, this is a school of theology. Their mission statement says this, and I quote, Our central mission is the education of persons for effective ministry in Christian churches and other religious communities, for academic leadership, and for the cultivation of justice and peace in local and global contexts. That sounds pretty good. Then they go on and say this. We affirm a liberal Christian heritage grounded in scriptures and traditions, critical thinking, and openness to emerging truths including those derived from science, experience, and other faith traditions. In a world fragmented by religious and ideological conflicts, we promote theological scholarship and dialogue to foster transformative possibilities for humanity and nature. So by saying that, they do not affirm scripture as the source of God's truth. They equate scripture to tradition, to critical thinking, to emerging truth, whatever that is, to science, to experience, and to other worldviews. In other words, they're not interested in what does God say about truth. 
They're interested in, what can I say about God? Essentially, what they're saying is, those of you who hold the truth, of the, hold to the truth of the Bible as God's unchanging standard, are intellectually inferior. Does that sound like slander to you? Sounds like slander to me. And see, this is a brand of quote-unquote Christianity, right? It's a brand of it that seems to want to join the cultural bandwagon. And they want to slander biblical, historical Christianity. A slander we would probably expect from those who, who don't know God. But it's coming from a quarter of society where we would expect people to know God. So why are they doing this? Why are they doing it? Well, I think because it's safer. It's much safer to side with leftism than it is to look at the Bible and understand its truths. And I'd even put it this way. Is it easier to call names? Or is it easier to be called names? But let's be clear. What does Jesus call this? Go back to our verse. He calls it a synagogue of Satan. It's a place of worship of the devil that's masquerading as a place of worship of God. And we have to be very careful of this. So in all of this, I see there's a clear parallel between this warning to Smyrna and to our church today. And so what is their comfort in this? This is kind of scary stuff. You're like, wow, that's, that's not real encouraging. I think there's encouragement in this. And it's those first two words. It says, I know. Jesus knows. He knows what we're going through as Christians in the world today. And I think we need to find peace in knowing that God is in control. And also, I think we can find peace in knowing that this is not a new thing. This is not something that's happening in our world today that hasn't happened before. Clearly, it was happening there in the first century. And here's some hope for you. What still exists? Rome or Christianity? It's Christianity, right? Rome is gone. So when we look at our current era, what do you think will persist? God's truth or cultural relativism? I think it's going to be God's truth that's going to last. So what about the next part of the passage here as we move on? Um, the next part of the passage says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So here, another theme, clearly, is persecution. Wow, Greg, you're just hitting all the encouraging points today. Well, that's what the scripture says. So that's what we go with. But let's look at those first words there, about to. About to suffer. The implication, I believe, is that persecution for Christians is always right around the corner. Think about those Christian students in Kenya. And they went to school that morning. Did they expect to be killed for their faith that day? I don't think so. See, we may not be experiencing that kind of persecution here, but it could be very close at hand. Paul put it this way. I have a picture of the Apostle Paul here. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually him, but he said this. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will 
be persecuted. All evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's from 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 13. So who can expect persecution? All, all of us. That's right. What does all mean? All. Good. That's right. If we desire a godly life in Christ, the Apostle Paul said, we, not maybe, we will be persecuted. Maybe that's the fourth certainty, death, taxes, eternity, and persecution. I don't know. But what's our hope? What's our hope in light of this? What is our hope? It says that for 10 days, you see that in the passage, for 10 days. What does 10 days mean? I don't know. But 10 days come and go pretty quick in my world. And so I think there's the implication Jesus promised us that persecution is only for a season. We will not be stuck in a perpetual cycle of persecution. It will either end or we'll die and we'll get to go to be with Jesus, right? Which brings us to our last theme from this passage, this last sentence. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's hope in this. Amen. In the face of all the current and future challenges we have as Christians, there's hope. There is hope. This translation is from the ESV version of the Bible. The NIV translates it and says, I will give you life as a victor's crown. This is reinforced elsewhere in the Bible. In James chapter 1 verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so this brings me back around to my original theme. We should not be afraid of the topic of death. We should not be afraid of the topic of persecution. Why? Because as Christians, we have eternal security in knowing that we will receive a crown of life at the end of our life here on earth. So what is overall, what is the encouragement for us in this? What is the encouragement? Well, I think it's this. I think it's that God rewards our faithfulness. When we're faithful to him, he rewards us. Sometimes, I know, we can think about faithfulness in light of like brushing our teeth, right? I was faithful to brush my teeth every night last week. If you're married, hopefully, maybe even brush your teeth more than that. But we think of that as faithfulness. But God's idea of faithfulness is so much more. God wants to have our heart. That's God's heart for us, is that he wants our heart. He wants us to make both big and small decisions in light of his kingdom. He wants us to stand firm in the face of slavery, in face of slander, in face of poverty, of intense tribulation. And if we do this, what does it say? It says we will receive a reward, a crown from God. So to close here, I want to give you <clears throat> just a few questions to ponder, maybe to take through your week, things you could be thinking about from this passage. The first one is, will you be faithful to pray and even act on behalf of Christians undergoing tribulation today? Like I said, we may not be undergoing that ourselves. There are others who are, and we can pray for them 
And maybe we can even act on their behalf. Will you be faithful to do that? Second thing, will you be faithful to your convictions when you face a season of persecution? Like I said, we are certain we will face persecution in some way or another. So here's a question for you to get worked out before then. Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful to your convictions when you face that? And lastly, will you be faithful to Jesus Christ for the entirety of your life? For the big decisions, for the small decisions, not just tomorrow, not just next week, but until that day you die and you receive the crown of life. As you think about those things, we'll pray and close for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message found in Revelation. Lord, we we trust you're going to have great things to show us here in the coming weeks as we think about uh, your words to John that were a word to these churches, that were a word to us in the midst of the things we face in our modern era and our lives. Um, God, I pray that we as people would be faithful. Lord, we do lift up those Christians who are facing intense tribulations around the world, challenges, uh, things that we do not face here. God, I pray that you would give them strength, that you would be working in your Holy Spirit to protect them as you see fit, to encourage them. Lord, I pray that we, each one of us, would be faithful in our convictions. Lord, that we would resolve now to be faithful regardless of what will come. That when that season of persecution comes, whatever it may be, however it may come, that we would be faithful to what you have shown us, to your gospel. Lord, we want to be faithful to you for the entirety of our life. Lord, we think about even last week as we talked about how we can be confident that we can have We can spend eternity in heaven with you because of your free gift of Jesus Christ, your son, who stood in our place and died the death that we died, took the wage of sin that was owed to us, took it so that we could have eternal life, that it was a free gift. God, we thank you for that, Lord. And as a result, we want to be faithful to you for the entirety of our life. Thank you for meeting with us and for blessing us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.